Thank you for listening to the audio podcast of the King's Crossing Church of Christ. To learn more or subscribe, please visit our website at kingscrossingcoc.com. It has been especially good to be together for worship today, has it not? We're going to continue our worship with a reading from Scripture. This comes from the New Testament book, 2 John chapter 1, written by a disciple of Jesus as a warning for the church. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. So we're doing, a, uh, we're doing a brief study through the uh, book of 2 John, just taking it uh, two or three verses at a time. We've been working on it the last few weeks. Uh, John has a lot to say about house guests, the people, the things that you welcome into your home. Um, it would be the case that much of the meaning in our lives comes from the people that we share our lives with, uh, the companions that we make. I think many of you have probably seen the same studies that I've seen about the way that we are so impacted by the people we spend the most time with. You're very likely to become a lot like them. The book of Proverbs says several things that I think most of us would, would affirm or feel like we resonate with. Uh, Proverbs chapter 22 says, do not make friends with a hot-tempered person. Do not associate with anyone easily angered, or you may learn their ways and get yourself ensnared. You hang out with a bunch of really angry people, you'll probably start becoming angrier and seeing more reason to be angry, and you might just really get yourself into some trouble when you get too angry over the wrong thing or at the wrong person. Good life advice. Proverbs chapter 27, verses 5 and 6 Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. And boy, didn't that end up being a prophetic word, thinking about Jesus himself. We have to be careful about who we trust, but it's easy sometimes when a person that we've been close to tells us something we didn't want to hear, and the temptation might be to pull back, but the proverb would say, if I'm a wise person, when there's someone who, based on our history, I know this person cares about me and shares my best interests or our collective best interests, and they have a word that's hard for me to hear, I should probably at least try to receive it and give it some thought. But someone who's just your yes person who only ever says, you're knocking it out of the park and everything's great, and no, let's not talk about that problem. He says you've got to be careful about people who only ever have good things to say. Proverbs 13.20 probably summarizes it well. Walk with the wise and become wise, for a companion of fools suffers harm. Always important to think about who you surround yourself with. And I would imagine most of us are 
kind of nodding our heads as we read through those Proverbs. They are derived from good, wise life experiences and I think make a lot of sense. It is the case that the people you spend the most time with will determine a lot of your thought processes, a lot of your behaviors. And as much as you might say, well, I like to pick some friends and I like to hang out with people who maybe don't share my morals or don't share my my code of ethics or whatever that is, you can surround yourself with those people, but you're going to always spend twice the energy having to define yourself as opposed to, I like to call it positive peer pressure. You surround yourself with good people and you're going to want to be a better person. Good to have friends that drive you that way. So John here in the letter of 2 John poses what I think is a really weird scenario to think about. What happens if an antichrist wants to be your BFF? Have you ever thought about that scenario? So I feel like if I'm going to preach through a text that involves the word antichrist, I need to at least talk about what that is, right? I think y'all would feel shortchanged if I didn't at least pause and, and tip my hat at this. So let's start with a quick bit of Bible trivia. Use your hands and indicate to me how many times do you think the word antichrist appears in the book of Revelation? Kevin has the correct answer. It's, it's goose eggs, right? Zero. Not a single time. Most people kind of associate it with the book of Revelation. Most people tend to think of this antichrist as like a singular figure with flaming eyeballs and lots of weird apocalyptic stuff surrounding them, but it's actually in John's letters, the only places that we find this term used, and John doesn't describe an antichrist as a singular historical person. Rather, he uses it to describe someone who had been a Christian, or at least we all thought this person was a Christian, but they have departed for whatever reason and are actually trying to undermine aspects of the Christian faith. So to whatever extent Hitler had been a Christian and walked away from the faith in order to influence the faith negatively, you could say he was a type of antichrist, but was Hitler the singular one? Definitely not. Certainly not as John defines that word. Uh, So I wanted to look real briefly at the places in John's letters where he uses this term just to help us flesh out in our heads what he's talking about as the problem. In 1 John, the larger letter, chapter 2, he says, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. So looking at that text and what he's talking about, it's, it's a plural term, right? He's talking about several people who exhibited this kind of behavior. We presumed they were Christian. They left us. They abandoned us, whether it's for self-aggrandizement or for some other reason. But he says, we thought these people were Christian, but they're definitely not part of us, and now they're working against us. He invokes that term to describe such a person. He goes on in the same letter in 1 John chapter 4 and says, this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Testing the spirits is a big theme in John's writings. He says, every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. So interesting that the key problem he has with their teaching is that they're trying to deny that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. 
So this, this type of um, belief, this question, comes up periodically even in popular culture. From several years ago, you might remember the Da Vinci Code, that book. So, so here's the thing that, that, that's really interesting. The way that a lot of people will try to portray Jesus who are wanting to push back on Christianity will say something like this. See, Jesus was this really good teacher. He was some sort of enlightened Buddha-type figure. And then later on, the church wanted him to be God, so the church started inventing ways to try and make him seem more divine than he really was. And they'll try to say, we've rewritten history to make Jesus seem divine when everybody knew Jesus was a man. The way that you know that is patently false is that if you know anything at all about John's writings or some of the early controversies in, in the early church, it was actually the opposite that was true. So you see what John's having to fight against is that there are people who are so convinced of Jesus' divinity that they're wanting to deny the fact that he was even a human. So it's precisely the opposite, what really happened in real life compared to what the Da Vinci Code was trying to portray. It's the opposite of what they were claiming. But they were so convinced of Jesus' divinity that they started saying, surely the spirit is just too high and holy to ever really come in contact with the flesh, certainly to become flesh like us. John makes a big issue of the importance of Jesus having been here as one of us. Back to the verse we looked at earlier in 2 John 7, in this shorter letter that we've been studying. He says, I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the Antichrist. So in the early church, there were these false teachers spreading these kinds of ideas. Um, sometimes we don't think that uh, John is likely dealing with what you would call the Gnostics. They became bigger a couple of centuries later, but we do have kind of an early form of what you would call Gnosticism, which is where these people would believe they have these higher teachings about God that most Christians don't have access to. We have this secret information about God and his nature that the rest of you aren't privy to, and therefore, we're kind of these elite teachers, and the rest of you are just really lucky to have us around. But they were highly condescending, and they did seduce a lot of people into buying into some of the stuff that they would claim. It seems that John is having to deal with some sort of a group like this, and he makes it very clear to the people he's writing to, just as Mike read for us. Don't hang out with these people. Don't follow them around. Don't welcome them into your home. And here I think he's using home as a metaphor for church, but don't give them a foothold into your congregation if they start trying to teach that Jesus is anything less than he really was, that Jesus was fully human and fully divine. Truly, Jesus's nature is a mystery, not meaning that we don't have some idea of what we're trying to say about it, but that I believe it's kind of impossible for the human mind to fully grasp what it means to be fully God and fully man. Something you can spend your whole life trying to wrap your head around and never completely get to the bottom of that well of mystery and wisdom. But it's worth trying to grasp the full implications of what it meant for God to become this flesh and blood human being. And even more than that, not just that he became one of us and became the best of us, but that he chose to be servant of all, which is an even deeper mystery. How could you have access to all power and all wisdom and be able to do anything and not do anything selfishly, to use all of that purely for the good of others. He's a mystery in so many ways. But both of these things really matter to us. It matters that Jesus is divine. It matters that Jesus is divine. 
We aren't smart enough. We need a source of higher wisdom. We aren't powerful enough. We need his strength to be able to rely on. We aren't able to fix all of humanity's problems on our own. We need a savior that comes from some sort of a higher place that has a a more solid ground to stand on. We don't know what we can trust in this world because everything is constantly changing. Everything is constantly being pulled out from under us. We need something that is solid and unchanging. We are sick, we are weakened, we are corrupted by the effects of sin that just pervades everything around us. We have a very difficult time having clear sight and perspective on anything. We need a great physician who can restore us and heal us. It matters that Jesus is divine because we needed a divine source of help and rescue, but it also matters that Jesus is fully human. We need someone who understands what it's like to be us who experienced all of our weaknesses. We need someone who who we can talk to who's actually walked some miles in the shoes that we wear, that he grasps what it is to be like us. We need someone who has been human to give us a better example. Surely there must be some human being who can show us what the good life ought to be like, someone who's actually done it, that we could follow and try to become like them. We need someone, a real flesh and blood person, to give us new ideas for higher possibilities of what humanity is capable of becoming. So his divinity and his humanity, you can't let go of either of those things. You can't remove either of those things without losing the great value of the way that he blends them in his person and in his life. And I would say never do these things become more clearly important than in our times of suffering and difficulty. One of my favorite books, I'm pretty sure I've mentioned to you before, uh, there's a guy named Christian Wyman. He has a book called My Bright Abyss. What a book title. Uh, This is one of those books that if you were, you know, those scenarios, like if you're going to have to go out on a deserted island by yourself and you can only bring like your Bible and two or three others, this would make my list. I I really, really uh, have been challenged and uh, stretched by this book. But uh, Christian Wyman happens to be one of the, the greatest living poets, I believe, just absolutely gifted with words. He spent a lot of his earlier years having left the faith and become an atheist. And at some point, he starts making his way back to God. And then in his late 30s, finds out by voicemail, he was having something weird going on with his body, went to the doctor, and the doctor leaves him a voicemail that says, "Um, hey, it's Friday, just letting you know you've got cancer, and it's really bad, and hopefully we'll talk to you next week. That's how he got that news. This is right after he's gotten married, and he is trying to sort out, how do I be a person of faith even as I'm facing my own likely death? He's got what seems it's going to be a a terminal form of cancer with very options. And so he spends a period of years writing this book where it's, I mean, it's very raw and very honest. Um, Not a cookie cutter Christian type book, but he's really trying to wrestle with how do I reach out to God, connect with God in the middle of this mess that I'm in? Try to make some sort of sense of it. So uh, he was thinking about Jesus's divinity and his humanity, and he chooses to use the word contingency when talking about Jesus because he says the amazing thing about him is that he has chosen to take on all the weaknesses of the flesh in becoming this authentic person. God is like an absolute most of the time. You know, nothing can affect him, nothing can reach him, nothing can harm him, 
But Jesus came to embody this form that was contingent, just like our lives are contingent on our circumstances and the people around us and the things that happen to us. So this is a lengthier quote, but for me it's a pretty profound one, so I hope you'll indulge me as I read through this. He says, If Christianity is going to mean anything at all for us now, then the humanity of God cannot be a half measure. He can't float over the chaos of pain and particles in which we are mired, and we can't think of him gliding among our ancestors like some shiny, sinless superhero. Indeed, what is most moving and durable about Jesus are the moments of pure and at times even helpless, my God, my God, humanity. No, God is given over to matter, the ultimate uncertainty principle. There's no release from reality, no outside or beyond from which some touch might come. But what a relief it can be to befriend contingency, to meet God right here in the havoc of chance, to feel enduring love like a stroke of pure luck. Sometimes we sing that song where we talk, we sing about the garden and we say, He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. Like Jesus didn't have to go through the things that he went through. But what an incredible love, what an incredible example that Jesus chose the path that he chose. He didn't choose to pull from access to some higher thing. He didn't dodge the pain. He didn't float above it, to use Wyman's language. But Jesus came down to us as a human in the flesh, and he lived all these gritty realities of humanity, and therefore can come to us as a true source of relief. I love this thing he says at the end where it feels to us like just a stroke of good luck. You mean God is actually there, and there just happens to be a God who loves me, and I realize how broken I am, and there happens to be one who could save me, and there happens to be one who could lead me out of this? It feels like a stroke of luck, but the reality is it's the enduring love of God that was always going to show up, that was always going to be there. But when we find it in the moments that we most needed it, we say how lucky we are that God was so solid, was so there for us all along. So there's kind of this theory stuff that we're talking about of Jesus being fully divine and fully human. We also have to flesh out what that means for the mission of God and therefore the mission of the church because both of these things remain crucial as we try to embody God's love to the world around us. Periodically, things kind of shift with how Christianity relates to culture. But sometimes the pendulum swings in such a way where you have everyone wanting to say, we don't want to get bogged down with this stuff in the world because, you know, God is kind of high and holy and we want to connect with God and we don't want to get bogged down with all this temporary stuff. And usually when people are doing this, they focus a lot on the language of soul saving. You know, we're just about saving souls. We don't want to get actually involved in anything else. And so it's as if church and what we do at church becomes, you know, functionally detached from the world that many people are living in. So where there is suffering or there is hunger or there is meaningful problems of justice and injustice, if the church's answer is to say, I'm just worried about one day I'll fly away, don't bog me down with that stuff. It's a faith that stays spirit but doesn't become flesh. Our mission has to remain rooted in the reality that we actually live in. 
when Jesus talks about abundant life, surely the good of Christianity doesn't just begin when you're dead. Otherwise, we ought to all just hurry up and hop into the caskets. The good of our Christian faith is what we do with it in the present time through the love that we show in our life, the love that reflects off of us as God has loved us. So one ditch we have to avoid is this ditch where we say our faith is really just about the otherworldly stuff, and we lose sight of the present world. Now, you can imagine the opposite end of that. The second ditch we have to be careful about is taking a view of our mission that is completely imminent and loses sight of the eternal nature of the people that we're working with. It is the case that the church should be compassionate and caring for those who are hungry, those who are, are really in need, issues of, of justice and injustice. And in fact, this is a spoiler alert, Joe Alley has got a special announcement today. We've been really involved, and Joe has been kind of leading the way with this care portal ministry, where we've done a lot of meaningful good things for people's lives here in Corpus Christi. I'm not gonna tell you all the details, but it is, a, it is a, just a wonderful compliment to our congregation, the way that we're being acknowledged for how you all have shown so much compassion. So the physical needs matter, and it's hard for a person to think about higher things when they don't know where they're going to get lunch today, or they don't know whether their kid might get taken away from them because of what they're not able to provide. All of these things are important, but we don't want to lose sight of the end goal. You know, when Jesus met that Samaritan woman at the well, he talked about the kind of water that will leave you never thirsty again. Not that the immediate water didn't matter, but Jesus didn't lose sight of the bigger picture. I want to give you something not just that satisfies your immediate needs, but cares for your eternal needs. Jesus was fully divine. Jesus was fully human. Our mission, likewise, is a mission that comes directly from the divine. It comes from God but it is to the flesh and blood human beings in the real places that we live and occupy, including our own community and our own city. Sometimes we sing the song, Blessed Assurance. What a good thing it is to know Jesus Christ. What a good thing it is to know that God has not forgotten us and that he sent help and he sent us a savior and that we have a vision of heaven and where it is we're trying to go, what it is we're trying to get to in this life and the next life. But for us, what Second John tells us is that assurance can't just be about presumption. It can't just be assurance that I know this and therefore I, I just kind of sit back and wait for it to all play out. For us, assurance must lead us to diligence. Because of how sure we are that Jesus is the victor, we serve in his kingdom actively. His mission, the thing that he taught us to pray for regularly, is that we would ask things on earth would become more like what they're going to be in heaven, that God's will would be done in more and more places, and that we do our part as his faithful workers, his slaves, his soldiers, his friends, whatever you would call us, that we do our part in making the part of earth we live in a little more like the heaven that we yearn for. 
So this morning, whatever needs you might have, if there's something that we could be praying with you about, um, we're going to have our elders, some positioned here at the front. We're also going to have some positioned along the back. If you had something more private you'd like to talk to someone about, we're happy to pray for anyone who needs it. If you'd like to name Jesus as Lord, if you'd like to embrace this, this, mystery, this mysterious person who is somehow both God and man, but who supplies all of your needs. Maybe today you'd like to be baptized into Christ. If you'd like to do any of that, if you'd like to talk to us, we invite you to come forward to the front while together we stand and sing this song.